Well, good morning, everyone. Sorry to be the bearer of bad news, but the break is drawing to a close. <laughs> Why don't you grab your, uh, your cup of coffee, find a seat. We'll get, uh, we'll get started with our, our teaching time for this morning. I know it was a slightly shorter break time uh, than in the past, but uh, we were bumping up a little bit closer to the 11 o'clock hour, so uh, we shortened it just a tad, just a tad. Well, it's good to see you all. Uh, my name is Sam Huggard, and it's a privilege to serve as a pastor here at Be Free Dover. Uh, welcome to you that are in the room, those of you online as well. Uh, glad you're here uh, this day. Uh, we are a couple weeks or three weeks deep uh, into a teaching series uh, the subtitle there, Living Faithfully in a Secular Culture, that's our series title, and uh, we are going through the book of Daniel, really the first half of the book of Daniel in the Old Testament, but we're taking actually a little bit of a detour this morning. Uh, we're actually going to be looking at Psalm 80 this morning, so still part of the teaching series, but looking at Psalm 80. Um, here's why, two reasons. Uh, first reason, I was not planning to speak this morning. All right, uh, we actually were going to have a training yesterday, Gospel Conversations, and we had a, a pastor from another uh, evangelical free church who was going to be part of leading that, and I roped him into preaching while he was here, but he's not here, all right? So uh, we're going to reschedule that. And I didn't want to throw off the whole uh, flow of the teaching cycle for the next uh, month and a half, and so I, we just kind of kept it the same. Secondly, though, um, as I thought about this, this is a wonderful opportunity for us to kind of get into uh, Daniel's shoes, so to speak. Because Psalm 80 would have been one of the Psalms that he read while in exile in Babylon. Uh, it was written about 100 years before the exile, before the Israelites were taken out of the land of Israel and, and brought to the land of Babylon. And sometimes it's hard for us to really imagine what it would have been like. Well, we actually know some of the prayers they prayed during their time there. And so we're going to consider one of those prayers this morning, thinking of how Daniel would have prayed this prayer, why he was in Babylon. And I actually think that for us, uh, we've been in this series saying that actually all followers of Jesus are in some ways exiles. We are all living this side of Christ's return. We are not in our ultimate home. So we are all sojourners, in some ways strangers and foreigners in a strange land. One day this earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God, but not yet. And until then, we're kind of living as exiles. And so, like Daniel, we need to learn how to pray this kind of prayer if we're going to be faithful followers of Jesus in a secular culture. So, uh, I'm going to read uh, Psalm 80. I invite you to stand with me. I'm going to read this psalm. After that, I will say the word of the Lord, and you can respond back. Thanks be to God. Psalm 80. Give ear, O shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock, you who are enthroned upon the cherubim, shine forth before Ephraim and Benjamin and Manasseh. Stir up your might and come to save us. Restore us, O God. Let your face shine that we may be saved. O Lord God of hosts, how long will you be angry with your people's prayers? You have fed them with the bread of tears and given them tears to drink in full measure. You make us an object of contention for our neighbors and our enemies laugh among themselves. Restore us, O God of hosts, let your face shine that we may be saved. 
You brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it. It took deep root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shade, the mighty cedars with its branches. It sent out its branches to the sea, and it shoots to the river. Why then have you broken down its walls, so that all who pass along the way pluck its fruit? The boar from the forest ravages it, and all that move in the field feed on it. Turn again, O God of hosts, look down from heaven and see. Have regard for this vine, the stalk that your right hand planted, for the sun whom you made strong for yourself. They have burned it with fire, they have cut it down. May they perish at the rebuke of your face. But let your hand be on the man of your right hand, the son of man whom you have made strong for yourself. Then we shall not turn back from you. Give us life, and we will call upon your name. Restore us, O Lord God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. The word of the Lord. You can have a seat. Growing up, uh, my father was a furniture upholsterer. Uh, he had a shop out in back of his house uh, where I grew up, and there was always a couple uh, chairs or couches in his shop at various stages of repair or, or disrepair. And uh, his work was amazing. I mean, he would take an old piece of furniture with faded fabric, uh, worn out springs, and a rickety frame, and he would restore it back to its original conditions. Sometimes actually better than its original conditions. And I used to love going on uh, deliveries with him when we would take a piece of furniture back to the home of the people that had brought it in. Uh, they brought it in all dilapidated. We would bring it back restored. And the people were always overjoyed at the transformation, seeing this restored piece of furniture coming back into their house. I think about my dad's work when I think about the idea of restoration something being broken and worn out, but being returned to its glorious original state. Now, I think that every human heart longs for restoration. It just happens naturally. That's just kind of our wiring. We long for restoration. You know, when you get sick, you, you long to be healthy again. You know, when I get a cold and I can't breathe for a while, after three day, days or so and I can breathe again, I'm like, oh my word, I forgot how wonderful breathing is. You know, we, we long just to be able to be normal, as we should be. Uh, obviously, if the health um, crisis is more severe, the longing is even deeper, a longing for restoration. Um, we, when we find ourselves in a relational crisis, maybe in a tough marriage, or maybe in a parenting struggle, we find ourselves longing for restoration, for relationships to be as we know they should be. Or even like when we're interacting with world events, you read the news, you watch the news, however you interact with the news, and you see headlines that are just troubling. I mean, this past week, we hear about a, a shooting at a Super Bowl victory parade, or we read about ongoing wars in Ukraine, Israel, Palestine. And if you're like me, there's just like this natural response of a sigh. Ugh. You know, when you see these things in our world that we just know are wrong and broken, and we long for things to be whole, as they should be. See, we all long for restoration personally and corporately, but often the restoration that we long for is not as simple as reupholstering a piece of furniture. 
That you just bring in, and a week later, whoa, look at this new piece. And most things in our life are not like that. So what do we do when the restoration that we long for seems out of reach? What do we do when the things we hope will be restored just seem to be broken beyond repair? Well, that's the case in Psalm 80. Um, The psalmist, in this case Asaph, uh, he is writing about the state of Israel and longing for the restoration of his nation. And he's writing in the midst of destruction. Now, three times in this psalm, you heard the phrase where Asaph writes, Restore us, O God, let your face shine, that we may be saved. He is calling out for restoration. Now, we see even more clearly why he's writing this prayer. Actually, if you looked at the previous psalm, Psalm 79, uh, Psalm 79 and 80 go together. Psalm 79 tells us more of the background in verses 1 through 9, uh, 1 through 4, sorry. Uh, Asaph writes, O God, the nations have come into your inheritance. They have defiled your holy temple. They have laid Jerusalem in ruins. They have given the bodies of your servants to the birds of the heavens for food, the flesh of your faithful to the beasts of the earth. They have poured out their blood like water all around Jerusalem, and there was no one to bury them. We have become a taunt to our neighbors, mocked and derided by those around us. Obviously, the nation is struggling. Life is not good in Jerusalem. Uh, Their enemies have grown strong. They have attacked. They have caused destruction. And the psalmist fears future attacks. The former glory of Israel has faded. Its beauty, its strength, and its holiness are in shambles. Restoration is needed, and there are no easy answers. Now, by Daniel's time, which would have been about 100 years after the psalm, the situation has grown even worse. The nation was on a decline for a long time as more and more enemies came and attacked and things got worse and worse until finally in Daniel's time, some of the Israelites have been taken away, carried off into exile, out of Israel, into Babylon. So now no no longer are they just looking at their nation around them being broken. They're not even in their nation, their, their land anymore. They're in a foreign land uh, thinking about their destroyed nation back home. Uh, They're longing for restoration, but clearly don't see how it's going to happen. So, our question for the morning, what do we do when restoration is desired but seems impossible? And part of the answer to that question is the word lament. That's what Psalm 80 is. It's a lament. It's a, a prayer, a cry out to God, Um, a prayer of sorrow, a prayer of deep desire. Now, uh, Mark Vrogop wrote a book called Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy. And uh, he defines lament this way in his book. He says, lament is the honest cry of a hurting heart wrestling with the paradox of pain and the promise of God's goodness. I love that definition. Lament, it's this honest wrestling and cry out to God about the paradox of life pain and God's promise of goodness. And we all know what this is like one way or another. And at this point, if you aren't really, if you can't say you know, at some point you will. No one gets through life without experiencing this paradox, that life is hard and painful, and yet God is good and promise is good. And how do those things go together? Well, lament is an essential act for followers of Jesus who are living in exile, those who are longing 
for restoration. So this morning, I want to dig into the anatomy of lament. What are the different elements of this kind of prayer that helps us um, strengthen faith as we live with this paradox of pain and promise? So we're going to look at four things this morning. First, lament involves remembering the way things were and should be. In lament, we're, we're remembering. Not just, we're, we're not just looking at what's around us, at the pain around us. We're actually remembering the way things used to be and the way things should be. Matter of fact, we wouldn't even have to lament if we didn't have this somehow deep down soul memory that things are not as they should be. That somehow, once, things were right with our world. Every human being has that sense, which is why we say now, man, things are broken, things are messed up. Now in Psalm 80, Asaph uh, uses the metaphor of a vine to tell the story of Israel. And you see this run through the whole psalm. In verses 8 through 10, he says, uh, you brought a vine out of Egypt. He's telling Israel's story here. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it. It took deep root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shade, the mighty cedars with its branches. Now, those of you that know the story of the Old Testament, you'll remember the story of how God brought his people out of slavery in Egypt. For 400 years, God's people had been in Egypt, and they had been in a position of, of, of deep need for deliverance and restoration. And God had powerfully and faithfully delivered them, brought them out of this land. He is the picture of a vine, a, little, a plant that is being mistreated, abused, and God takes it out of one place and plants it in another place where it will flourish. Out of Egypt into the promised land. And Asaph is remembering how God did this for his people generations before. You see, the evil one wants us to fixate on things as they currently are. That's part of the temptation in life, is to become so either obsessed with the brokenness of our world that we become uh, utterly despairing or cynical or angry. Um, he wants us to become fixated on things as they are in their current broken state. And part of lament is saying, what we see now is not all that there is. And we remember, not just in our lifetime, but generations prior, looking through the scriptures, that we're part of a much larger story. So we remember God's larger story of deliverance, of restoration, how he has restored in the past, time and time again. We see his goodness. So as Daniel and the other exiles were in Babylon, I'm sure that they are reading, praying, singing this psalm, and they're resonating with this image of the vine having been taken out of Egypt and brought into Israel planted so that it flourished, and it did flourish. And Israel was glorious at one time. And they're longing for this to happen again, that God would take them out of Babylon and bring them back home, and that they would once again flourish. Now, it's painful to remember how things once were and how things should be, because we feel the tension between the way things should be and the way that things are. But as followers of Christ, we must not allow that tension to keep us from this activity of remembering that God has, first of all, created a, a perfect world. When things were first made, things were as they should be. We were, we were in a world of peace, a world of shalom. 
Um, and time and time again, even after things fell apart, God has broken into history and brought restoration. When we remember this, it begins to sow the seed of hope in our lives, even in the midst of pain, that God has been faithful in the past to restore. He can be faithful in the present as well. So first, lament involves remembering the way things were and should be. Secondly, lament involves grieving the way things are and should not be. Uh, it's not just looking back and saying, oh, I hope, I hope that happens again. It is taking an honest look at things as they currently are. Uh, Asaph recognizes in this psalm that the vine that God brought out of Egypt is no longer flourishing. In verses 12 and 13 of Psalm 80, you see him referencing this. He says, Why then have you broken down its walls so that all who pass along may pluck its fruit? The boar from the forest ravages it, and all that move in the field feed on it. And then in verse 16, he says, They have burned it with fire. They have cut it down. May they perish at the rebuke of your face. You see, he's, he's referencing how the current state of Israel. He's saying that this vine is now being um, plundered by enemy nations. The, the abundance that God had brought to Israel, they're, they're now being robbed of. People are walking right in, and they've desecrated the temple. They're taking God's people. Um, there's great harm happening. And it's not just that they are plucking the fruit off the vine. He goes on to say they've burned it with fire and cut it down. It's almost as if God's People and his promise seem to have come to an end. Now, the psalmist is not saying it has, but to the natural eye, it does look this way. They're in such a state of disrepair, it looks like they are cut off, cut down. Things are not good at this point in Israel's history. So the psalmist grieves the present state of his nation, but then he goes a step further in his grief, and he begins to ask questions. Uh, in verse 4 of chapter 80, uh, the psalmist says, Lord God of hosts, how long will you be angry with your people's prayer? And then in verse 12, why then have you broken down its walls so that all who pass along the way pluck its fruit? How long is it going to be this way? And why did you let this happen? Now, maybe you think that's almost a disrespectful um, question to ask of God. The Bible tells us otherwise. Uh, God does not mind hearing our questions and our complaints. Matter of fact, um, he would far rather we bring our questions and complaints to him than do what we naturally do, which naturally, we say those questions to ourselves. And when we say them to ourselves, those always turn bitter. Those questions turn bitter. They make our hearts doubt God's goodness. They make us resentful, and we carry that out then with others. Those questions turn inward, always turn our hearts. So God calls us to bring those questions to him, and this psalmist does this. They're very raw. God welcomes our lament. He welcomes our question, even our complaint. So we see that lament involves remembering the way things were and should not be. I'm sorry, the way things were and should be. Lament also involves grieving the way things are and should not be, and we have much to grieve in our lives personally, and in our lives corporately, and we should not be afraid from bringing those to God. But we don't end here. Uh, the third thing we recognize in this psalm is that lament involves repenting of why things have become as they are. 
But lament involves repenting of why things have become this way. See, embedded in this uh, lament is not only grief over the bad situation, but over the sin which brought them to this place. Restoration is needed because of sin. It's not always our sin individually, but there would be no need for restoration in our world if sin didn't exist. Sin is the reason restoration is needed. Uh, Now, another um, Old Testament prophet, um, Isaiah, he writes about the same situation in Israel, about them on the decline and what's happened to them. And in chapter 5, verse 7, listen to how he describes the situation and its cause. He says, the vineyard, again, this picture of Israel as the vine or the vineyard, the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. And the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry. See, the prophet is saying that Israel is is the vine that God brought out of Egypt and planted in the promised land to flourish. And what he intended for his people in that land is they would reflect his character. That justice would flourish in the land. It would be a place where people... um, Uh, were treated rightly, fairly. The poor were taken care of. Um, And what they're finding instead of justice in the land is bloodshed, violence, greed. These things have taken over in Israel. And God hates it. God wanted justice. He doesn't see it. He wanted righteousness. Righteousness is right relationship, where where people are, are in relationship based on God's image in one another. Uh, giving one another not what we we think they deserve, but what God uh, says they deserve based on his image. But instead of righteousness, behold an outcry. People are at odds with one another. There's great friction, dissension, and division in the land. God intended his people to be just and righteous, and that is not the case. Therefore, restoration is needed. Sin is the ultimate cause of brokenness in this world. And in lament, we connect our grief over present brokenness to its ultimate cause. That's a big part of lament, connecting what we see to why it is the way it is. We know that Daniel did exactly this. Um, We're not going to get to Daniel chapter 9 in this teaching series. We're actually going to stop at about chapter 6. But um, in Daniel chapter 9, we see him pray a prayer of this kind of repentance In Daniel 9, 16 to 17, listen to what he prayed. O Lord, according to all your righteous acts, let your anger and wrath turn away from your city Jerusalem, your holy hill, because of our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers. Jerusalem and your people have become a byword among all who are around us. Now, therefore, O our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercy. And for your own sake, O Lord, make your face to shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. Isn't that a beautiful prayer? We see, first of all, Daniel connects his present situation, being exiled in Babylon, with the original cause, which is the sin of the people in Israel. And we see him actually repent over a couple types of sin. He says, for, um, uh, because of our sins, he's including himself, in the sin that has brought about this great brokenness. And then he says, and for the iniquities of our fathers. There's both personal 
and corporate repentance going on in Daniel's prayer. You see, in lament, we not only are offering up our sins to God, we're actually part of sinful humanity. And we are praying for God's mercy. And some people say, well, that's not, you know, that's not fair that we should be praying for somebody else's sin. And my answer is, it's not fair that one man's righteousness is credited to me either. That there's one man's solution for the sin of the world. So when we include ourselves in the sin of the world, we are more ready to receive this great gift of grace given to us through the one man, Jesus Christ. See, lament involves repenting of why things have become as they are. And that's sin in our lives personally and in our world, world broadly. Lament involves remembering the way things were and should be. Lament involves grieving the way things are and should not be. Lament involves repenting of why things have become as they currently are. And then lastly, lament involves requesting that God graciously restore. We don't just sit there in the brokenness. We don't just say, man, things are bad. I'm lamenting this. Three times in this psalm, psalm, restore us, O God. Restore us, O God. Restore us, O God. Lament involves a cry for restoration. That's the consistent request of Psalm 80. And Psalm 80 tells us that in order for restoration to happen, we need to look God in the face. You hear that phrase? Turn your face toward us. Um, You know, have you ever had the experience of maybe you doing something wrong, or maybe it's one of uh, your children doing something wrong and being unable to look each other in the face? That even happens with my dog, you know? Why did you do that, Penelope? And she can't look. We don't want to look someone in the face when there's wrong. And that's this situation here with people in God. There's a difficulty to look each other in the face. And the psalmist cries, turn your face toward us. Let it shine that we may be restored. So Psalm 80 tells us that's what's needed if restoration is going to happen. This reconciled relationship with God, where we are looking each other in the face. And Psalm 80 does more than this. It also whispers how this will happen. Psalm 80, verse 17 and 18. The psalmist says, Let your hand be on the man of your right hand, the son of man whom you have made strong for yourself. Then we shall not turn back from you. Give us life, and we will call upon your name. See, God did not answer the prayer of Psalm 80 by giving Israel more instructions on not sinning. Uh, That would be like transplanting Uh, a sick plant from one pot simply just into another pot. Still sick. Good luck, try again. God didn't give Israel another Ten Commandments. Say, okay, the Ten didn't work, now here's 20. God didn't give them more instructions on how not to sin. See, the psalmist here is is applying this word, this phrase, about let your hand be on the man of your right hand, the son of man, whom you have made strong for yourself. He's applying that. He's thinking about Israel. He's praying that God's blessing would be on Israel, the vine that he had brought out of Egypt and planted in the promised land. But we know that the ultimate son of man, who now sits at God's right hand, is Jesus. Daniel actually makes reference to that in his book. Um, The son of man is Jesus' most favorite phrase or title for himself. See, 
Jesus, the Son of Man, the one that sits at God's right hand, is God's ultimate answer to the lament of Psalm 80 and to all our prayers for restoration. God's plan for ultimate restoration of the sin-sick vine of his people was to send his son Jesus to live and die in our place as the Son of Man. Not just a new set of laws, but a new vine. A new vine planted that would flourish. Matter of fact, when Jesus was here on earth physically, in John 15, verses 1 and, and verse 5, he said this about himself. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I am him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. The restoration that we ultimately long for is found, connected to Jesus, who is the true vine. See, Jesus, in being the true vine, it means he is what humanity is supposed to be. I mean, Israel was supposed to be this wonderfully abundant people who God had delivered, planted in the promised land to reflect his justice and righteousness, his love, his goodness, his mercy. And they failed, as do we. Humanity has fallen short of what God intends humanity to be. And so God has sent another vine, another human who's also God, perfectly man and God, who is the true vine. And Jesus, as he walked the earth, he bore much fruit. His life was full of justice and righteousness and love and mercy. He never once broke God's law. He was what humanity was supposed to be. And yet, he was cut off. He who never sinned had no reason for judgment to come upon him, yet took upon himself our sin and our judgment. In his death, Jesus dealt with the root of the sin problem, hearts that doubt God's goodness and resist his rule. And that's the heart of every single human who just doesn't quite believe that God actually is for our good, that his rules, his instructions actually guide us in life best lived. But Jesus on the cross took the punishment of our sin upon himself. He was condemned in our place. And then more than that, he takes our sin itself into his body, that its power can be removed from our lives. You see, this is true restoration, where we can have hearts that no longer doubt God's goodness and resist his rule. But Jesus not only died in our place, cut off in our place, but he rose again, victorious over Satan's sin and death. And his resurrection is the beginning of the ultimate resurrection. Restored hearts, restored lives, restored communities, resurrected hearts, lives, and communities. Jesus promised that whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. Whoever abides in Jesus will flourish. Our lives will flourish in Christ, which begs the question, what does it mean to abide in Christ? If this is the promise, what does it really mean? I'm going to offer to you two facets this morning of abiding in Christ as we close. The first, to abide in Christ, we, we must trust in Him and what He has done. Now, we can't abide in Christ if we don't know Him and trust Him. And so when Jesus came, He, he told people to believe the good news, 
that he was God in the flesh who had come to solve our sin problem. That Jesus is our rescuer, our savior. And on the cross, he paid for our sin. And then in his resurrection, he rose for our life. To abide in Christ, we must trust and believe in that message. But trusting and believing in that message is not all that there is to abiding. James actually says later in the Bible that even the demons believe the truth about God and shudder. The demons don't abide in Christ, though they know the truth about Christ. See, abiding in Christ is more than just conceptual faith. Abiding in Christ is about ongoing trust and connection with Jesus. Ongoing trust and connection with Jesus. Restoration happens as we live connected to Jesus at all times, in all ways, in all areas of life. The life of Christ being brought into humanity and being lived through humanity because we're connected to him by his Holy Spirit. I've been reading a great little book recently uh, called Practicing His Presence by Frank Laubach, who was a missionary uh, and a prolific author. And he, he talks a lot in his books about the abiding life of Christ. And he has a great instruction on how to do this. He, uh, he's, he practically says, try to call Christ to mind at least one second of each minute. You do not need to forget other things or stop your work, but invite him to share everything you do say or think. That as you go to the gym and work out, you actually just kind of call to mind. Uh, Christ, hey, Jesus, you're here with me. You know, thanks for giving me the body you have that's moving and grow, strong. Thank you for this. Or as you're at the workplace, you're mindful of those around you and maybe you're talking to Jesus about them. As you're caring for persnickety kids, you're mindful of how you've been that way with Jesus. You're bringing him into the flow of everything in your life. So it's not that we're setting aside life in order to spend time with Jesus. We're, we're inviting Jesus to walk in life with us. This is the abiding life. And Frank, in his book, goes on to offer a couple of just simple ways we practice this. He says, first of all, we could just simply, once every you know, uh, uh, minute, just recognize his presence with us. Maybe just even saying his name. Jesus, thank you, you're with me. Or maybe you're just, you're just, just saying, saying something to him about someone around you. But just actually saying a word to him. He said, secondly, you could just practice um, humming or singing a song in your head. Maybe one of the ones we sang this morning, that... Music is powerful in our ability to bring not only our minds, but our hearts to God. So you have a kind of song in your heart that is helping to connect you with God as you go through life. Or thirdly, and I love this one, try the practice of talking to Jesus instead of talking to yourself. Um, try to pay attention this week how often you talk to yourself. We all do. And what do you say to yourself? Uh, maybe it's your disdain for someone around you. Maybe it's your disdain for yourself. Um, we all have an internal soundtrack going on. We talk to ourselves all the time. Yet the scriptures have told us that Jesus has promised to be with us till the end of the age. So if Jesus is right with us, the problem is most of the time we're not aware of that fact. We're living as if he's not. We live as if we come and meet with him once a week or maybe once a day. But the power comes when we are aware that he is with us 24-7. So the Christian life is not that we try so hard to do all the commands of God. We are trying to bring our life into deep communion with Jesus Christ. And then he bears much fruit through us. Living with the awareness of God's presence 
changes everything. So I encourage you this week to begin to put this into practice. Uh, the guy Frank Laubach, he actually took years to kind of develop this practice. It's learned. We learn and we grow, and God wants to encourage us as we learn to grow in living within an awareness of God being with us all through life. So like Daniel, uh, we live as exiles who are longing for home, and therefore we do lament. We must lament. Uh, we must pray Psalm 80 as he did. But we can pray these words with even greater confidence and hope because we know that the true vine, Jesus, has come for us. And we can abide in Jesus as we wait for his return and for the restoration of all things. Will you stand with me? I'm going to close in prayer and a song. Lord God, we are so thankful uh, for your word, uh, which points us to Jesus, the living word. And Jesus, we are so thankful that you have come for us, uh, that you are deeply aware of our need. Uh, you, you know more than we do um, our own brokenness. You know the sin. And, and yet, Lord, um, you have drawn close. Uh, you have poured out your mercy and your love upon us. Thank you. And Jesus, we know that not only have you wanted to uh, pay for our sin, but Lord, you want, now want us to abide in you that our lives can be restored. God, I know that no matter what we face, whether we are in a difficult relationship, a difficult work situation, a health crisis, Lord, we know that in this world we will have trouble. But yet, Lord, you know, the promise is we can live restored lives, flourishing lives, fruitful lives, even in the midst of these things. So God, I pray that you would help us learn to walk with you this week. Help us to abide in you and bear much fruit. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. And we're going to teach you a new song today. It's called Abide. Um, and this band introduces uh, the song this morning. We're going to sing through the ver first verse and the chorus so you can get a, a feel for it. And then we'll um, invite you to join in.